0: Hello and welcome to a brand new series of University. In this series, I'll be speaking to some of our remarkable researchers from the University of Southampton. We will discuss their work, how they've had to adapt during this year, and most importantly, getting to know the person behind the research over a virtual cuppa. To kick us off, I'm joined by Professor Krista Petley. Krista is a professor in history within humanities at Southampton. His research looks at the histories and legacies of slavery and, in particular, the social and cultural history of Jamaica. Krista has written several books on the subject and is already planning his next one. So pencils down, let's meet Krista, the person behind the research. Thank you so much for joining me today, Krista. Um, Would you mind just introducing yourselves to our uh, listeners today?
1: Yeah, uh, thanks Joe. So my name is Krista Petley and I'm Professor of Atlantic History in the Department of History in the School of Humanities.
0: Excellent. And do you have a cup of tea ready for our chat today?
1: I, I do have my cup of tea ready <laughs> in my favourite mug.
0: Oh, what's the mug got on it? Let's have a look. It's
1: a Mr Scruff mug, oh, uh, make, yeah. make Us A Brew, and it's got a picture of this dehydrated looking cartoon <laughs> character is then revived by his cup of tea.
0: That's exactly how we all feel (laughs) after a good cupper. I think especially (laughs) as the weather gets a little bit colder. So I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your work at the university today as well as a bit more about sort of the person behind the research. Um, Would you mind sort of just giving a bit more information about what it is exactly that you're sort of researching at the moment and your interests?
1: Yeah so my broad interest is in uh, Atlantic history and mostly in the 18th and 19th century. And I'm particularly interested in the history of slavery Mm -hmm. and in the abolition of slavery. Most of what I've done has focused on the Caribbean and uh, particularly on Jamaica. And my research in general focuses on slaveholders. So I'm interested in the, the perpetrators of the institution of slavery. And I'm interested in... Really, all aspects of their lives, their culture, and um, particularly in the era of abolition. So, how okay. slaveholders responded to the, the the challenge of of abolitionism.
0: It must be a really interesting time to be. Well, it's always an interesting time to be researching that, but particularly at the moment with the Black Lives Matter movement and sort of the prevalence of it, and how many people are sort of getting involved in it, and and the changes that we're seeing happen. Do you do you think that that's sort of impacting your research, or do you think you're sort of Uh, responding to that at all you're you're obviously have a lot to say about it i should i should imagine
1: yeah it's relevant it's something that never goes away though you know this was a relevant topic when i started working on it more than two decades ago and and it remains relevant now so Mm. you're absolutely right you know it's been in the news and there's been protests of course on both sides of the atlantic um Connected to the the Black Lives Matter movement, mm. but ever since I started researching the histories of slavery and and its legacies, uh, it has resonated yeah. in the news in in our lives right you know in, in our societies yeah uh, and that 's one of the reasons for studying a, a topic like that
0: i obviously uh, you 're quite right. it should always be something that we 're sort of interested in learning more about and educating ourselves about. But obviously, you know, with the news and everything, it's more at the forefront um, than ever as exactly where it should have been the whole time. So do you look at individual slaveholders generally? Because I know you did a bit of work looking at a slaveholder called Simon Taylor in the past.
1: That's right. So my first book was called Slaveholders in Jamaica, which does exactly what it says on the cover and looks (laughs) in general at slaveholders uh, during the, the era of abolition. So up until emancipation in the 1830s. And then my most recent book was about, as you say, one individual, uh, this character, Simon Taylor, who was one of the wealthiest slaveholders in the British Empire, who lived during the 18th century, died in 1813 and was one of the most vocal uh, defenders of, of, of slavery and the slave trade.
0: What particularly struck you about about this man's writing then? What did you learn? Well,
1: I called my book White Fury. And the the reason for that is that Taylor was incredibly angry. And this is something that you see developing in his letters over the course of his lifetime. He was born into an empire that he thought belonged to him and mm. that, that the future would be his and, and his groups, namely slaveholding, Sugar planters. So he was born in 1740, and then uh, went back to Jamaica, having been educated at Eton in the 1760s. And at that time, he had no reason to think that uh, there would be any real challenge, Mm. apart, of course, from slave rebellions, um, to to him and what he wanted to do uh, as a sugar planter in the British Empire. And then in the 1780s, after the American Revolution, we see the rise of the abolition movement, and he completely changes. Okay. Uh, his, his his style of writing transforms, and he becomes this incredibly embittered, angry, and I think confused person. Mm. Um, he, he had a sense of the world in which what he was doing was profitable, um, beneficial to the country, and saw himself as a very proud British patriot. And so in the 1780s, with the rise of abolitionism, he finds things very hard after that to, to to make sense of and becomes this very angry, very embittered individual by the time he dies. So he dies one of the wealthiest men in the world, okay. but also one of the the, the angriest.
0: <laughs> and I know that you've sort of spoken a little bit about this research before and you mentioned about it's about reading between the lines of what he writes about and what he says as well. And considering what he's left out of his sort of letters and and, and pieces of writing, What what sort of can you tell us more about why that's so important?
1: One of the things that Taylor leaves out are the enslaved people who he oppressed and who he exploited. Uh, to to make his fortune. He 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 discusses them really only as units of labour, okay. and and occasionally as uh, as threats to his safety. As the, the possibility of a slave revolt sometimes comes up in his letters, mm. but we never really find them mentioned by name. Mm. But we know that this guy would have been waited on hand and foot by these people. Mm. That he lived his life surrounded by individuals whose names he would have known and who perhaps knew him more intimately than anybody else, Mm. including these transatlantic correspondents who I'm reading about in the letters, you know, that Taylor was writing to. Mm. So it's remarkable to me that he has so little to say about those people. And I've tried as best I can to find out about them and their lives, including their relationships with Taylor but also their wider experiences using other sources. So Taylor did leave other material from which we can get some sense of uh, of, of who the enslaved people were who lived on his
0: properties
1: mm. and who he spent so much time around.
0: That silence sounds like it speaks volumes really and, and, and says so much without, you know, obviously him saying anything at all. And I know that you're also looking into how slaves are listed as possessions in, in wills and things. Is that correct?
1: That's right. I, I've been writing about, uh, over the summer... Uh, probate inventories which are are, like alongside wills they're part of the process of uh, of uh, evaluating an estate when somebody dies okay and in jamaican probate inventories including taylor's which is huge it lists a probate inventory lists all of the property that belonged to an individual and taylor is such a wealthy person um, left behind a huge probate inventory and Yes, they list enslaved people, shockingly to us, mm. as, as items of personal property. But as you say, it speaks volumes, because one of the things that that form of writing does for us is open up a really important element of slaveholder culture. Mm. You learn that slaveholders like Taylor viewed enslaved people as property and they viewed them very carefully as property as well. This is one of the things that's particularly chilling. They not only saw people as property, but they could evaluate exactly how much an individual was worth mm. based on a range of factors we have to assume, like that strength, gender, their age, and so on and so forth. And those things go into these valuations that you find in, in, in probate inventories, mm. which say almost nothing about them as people. They list their names, but generally what you're reading is the name that was imposed on them Mm. by a slaveholder. It's not the name that they would have chosen for themselves or that they necessarily used um, with their their friends and family. So what these documents tend to tell us about mostly, I think, is the outlook of slaveholders. They help to understand, if you like, what slaves are were faced with, Mm. um, that that whole culture and ideology of of people as possessions. Mm. So they're, in that respect, quite depressing documents, but important ones nonetheless. I feel that this is one of the things that I want to do with my work is to try to make sense of the ways in which slaveholders justified what they did to themselves and to the outside world and also how that becomes, for for them in their culture, part of their day-to-day experience. Mm. It's normal. It's banal. Mm. It's just what happened in that culture and in that society. And these slaveholders became so inured to it that it was second nature. Mm. And I think that's part of what you see in Taylor's letters when he describes people simply as threats or as property, not as people. But that's important. You know, how is it that people can become like that? they show you what people are capable of under Mm. certain circumstances they show you the sorts of ways in which it's possible for human beings to behave yeah given the right set of circumstances yeah um and that to me i think is fascinating because that's the real value of that kind of history Mm. so that's a rather long way of saying joe yes that's right i've been looking at probate inventories Mm. over the summer
0: (laughs) As a historian, I'm interested to know what your thoughts are on the idea of removing statues of slave traders. We've seen that, you know, that's been in the news um, over the last few months. And, I, you know, there's differing opinions. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, this was a big thing. Some of these statues, like the one of Robert Milligan on the on the dockside in London, uh, of people that we've never really not many people have heard of that are, are there from a long time back. So mm. Robert Milligan was one of the founders of the of the West India Dock uh, back at the beginning of the 19th century. But he was heavily involved in slavery and the slave trade. And the, the Dock Company decided to move that statue. And of course, the big famous slave trade statue that was uh, dramatically removed was Edward Colston in, in Bristol. Mm. And I think that there, that there has to be a discussion about those statues, and why they're there, and whether they still belong in those locations, do they still does Colston still represent modern bristol and and if he stays, then what else should perhaps go up mm. as well as Colston, and if he goes, then then what do you do with him, and, and how do you make sense of and understand him? A lot of people have said that moving the statues is somehow to erase history I don't really follow that i think that this the statue itself isn't the history of bristol yeah it's a representation of a man who was closely involved with the with bristol as a as a a merchant including as a slave trader and as a philanthropist and i think making sense of him and understanding him is really really important Mm. and and understanding well what does that tell you about bristol and it's and its history as a city and its developments and and I can understand why some people might want to move that statue, and to remove that statue. So uh, these historical statues, I think, are are part of the landscape, mm. and, and and understandably we want to question them and think about the culture that that put them up. But let's also think about our culture and think about well who we feel we are now and what what would we like people in a hundred or two hundred years time. Looking back at the landscape, or looking at the landscape that we bequeath to them, what do we want them to mm. take from that about who we are and what we wanted?
0: You've obviously found your pathway in, in research. Has it been quite a long journey? Do you have many sort of significant memories of your time sort of researching? Have you sort of travelled much or been anywhere sort of interesting at all in in the time that you've sort of been been researching this area?
1: Well, I went to Jamaica as a PhD student, and that was really interesting and exciting and I think formative in lots of ways my family if we went abroad on holiday it was on the ferry to France and I'd never been on a plane (laughs) and so I got on a plane in 2001 to go to Jamaica to do six months of research and I'd set it all up and found somewhere to live before I left But that was an amazing experience Mm. uh, to never set foot on an aeroplane before and then to jet off for six months to Jamaica to do this research. And I remember at the time, friends of mine saying how jealous they were of me going to the Caribbean because they had pictures in their mind of the Caribbean as this tourist paradise. and. Where I lived in Jamaica wasn't like that at all. It was the city of Kingston, which is a very big third world city. And I had to get from Kingston to Spanish Town where the archives were. And I, uh, as a PhD student keen to save money, I took public transport. Mm. And that was a really, it was a really interesting, and at times it was quite an uncomfortable experience. Uh, I found myself as a visible minority for the first time in my in my entire life Mm. so you find yourself standing out and you find yourself obviously not as an oppressed minority you've Mm. got incredible privileges as a white person in Jamaica partly because people do assume that you're a tourist and, Mm. and try their best to help you to get where you want but nonetheless you know just that experience of standing out I think was really important for me And, you know, helped me to understand a lot of things in a different way and and to have lived for six months in Kingston doing those journeys on public transport to the archive, I felt was was a really necessary and important part of of the research Mm. um, as important as going to the archive itself. So some people do study Caribbean history and you can get PhDs in Caribbean history without actually going to the region mm. and for me i think that's a bit of a problem i think actually going and and seeing the place mm. as it is now and having an experience of it is is necessary to to doing that research well
0: i'm amazed at the scope that your sort of research reaches out to and and how it can be used and interpreted and I, I'm really interested to know how you got into this sort of area of research in the first place. What motivated you to, to explore this part of our history?
1: There are always a number of things going on when you come to research, I think. And and some of them come from the, the research itself. I was fascinated to know more about the history of Britain. And I was fascinated as an undergraduate by Britain's engagement with the wider world. Mm. And when I came to be a postgraduate doing a master's at Warwick, partly because of the expertise in that department, I got interested in the Caribbean. And then as a PhD student, you're always interested in pushing the boundaries of of knowledge. You have to, right? That's the point of the PhD. And I, I could see that there wasn't much work done on slaveholders in the British Caribbean. There'd been a lot of work done on the master class in the US South, but we didn't have the sort of literature that we needed to understand that group mm. in the British Caribbean. And since then, in the last two decades, me and a number of other scholars have done a lot of work on that area. So we now know much more about these characters than we than we did before. So in part, it's to do with what we're all doing as academics, we're pushing the boundaries of our of our knowledge. Mm. But also, I think, it's about doing something that is not just interesting and not just that we don't yet know about, but that is somehow relevant. The yeah. Black Lives Matter movement, which has been particularly prominent in recent years. Mm. Uh, I grew up during the 1990s. And so I was a teenager and can remember the murder of Stephen Lawrence. Mm. And just before I started as a master student, the Macpherson Report came out into not just the murder but the botched police investigation that followed the murder Mm. and Macpherson in that report talked for the first time about institutionalized racism or at least that report coined the phrase Mm. and that caught my attention that was something that I was interested in and as I mentioned before the sorts of things that i Want to do with my work is to understand the legacies of slavery, including the legacies of slaveholding, and that includes understanding the structures and the cultures of racism. And so I think that context of the contemporary Britain that was around me when I was coming to my study also helped shape what I wanted to do and helped me to make the decisions that I made about what I wanted to study. Mm.
0: all of our guests on this podcast as well if they have an object that they would like to share with us about either their career journey that they're proud of or that has a bit of a story behind it do you have something to share with us today? I
1: quite like using objects when I'm teaching and it, and it does help to have small children so <laughs> I, I use model dinosaurs for one of the lectures that I do on big history I also bring in dragons to that talk excellent so I've got uh, I've got in front of me here one of the many many model dragons that are in my house that my kids spend hours playing with and and they come from the Cressida Cowell book series, How to Train Your Dragon, which yes. of course is now loads of films and cartoons. Yeah, And uh, one of the reasons that I do that is that I like to talk to students about stories okay. and the fact that all stories have some kind of purpose to them, including these dragon stories. So although they're entertainment and fantasy, On some level, those How to Train Your Dragon stories are also helping whoever reads them, children or adults, to put their problems into perspective. So in the first of these books, The Small Viking Hero thinks he has a problem with a small disobedient dragon, but it turns out that a real problem is a massive sea dragonus giganticus maximus, and that the story is about him defeating this big dragon. And it's a fun story, but it's also telling you something about putting your problems into perspective. And that's just one hook for a wider set of ideas to give to students about All story, including the true stories that we tell as historians, Mm. having some kind of purpose to them, helping to narrate something that will allow people to understand a problem in a different way. And for us as humans, I think story is absolutely essential. Mm. Conversation, gossip, and story, it's really how we learn. Even quite technical things. Imagine when you get an IKEA table, you've got those instructions. It's basically the story of a table from (laughs) lots of different bits on the floor to table. We do things through story. Mm. And this is one of the ways that I use my dragons is to introduce the idea of stories being important.
0: I love that. Do you have any other toys that you use in your lectures as well?
1: So I've got some things that I bring into my first lecture on the Atlantic world. So I've got a, a model horse that My little boy had from, I think, the age of about 18 months and a a llama. (laughs) And I I use those to talk about the conquest of the Americas, because the biggest domestic animal in the Americas before Europeans arrived there in the aftermath of Columbus's voyage of 1492, Mm. the biggest domestic animal there was the llama. Okay. Uh, Europeans arrived not just with horses but on horses okay. which must have been a terrifying spectacle for, mm. for people in the Americas and this is just one of many, many factors that helped to understand the European conquest of the Americas. Okay. Uh, disease, in fact, is probably a far bigger one but one of the ones that's quite easy to get across to a class visually mm. using two quite nice little children's toys is is that one (laughs) to do with horses and llamas
0: excellent I did not know when I started recording this podcast with you that we would end up talking about dragons llamas horses and dinosaurs but (laughs) I love it thank you for sharing those that's fantastic I'm gonna use that to segue into um, the challenges we've recently faced um, with sort of lockdown and, and the change of how we're working and how we're researching from home how do you feel about sort of returning to a very new way of teaching and, and learning at, at the university
1: I think if you'd asked me a fortnight ago I would have just said I've hated every second of it <laughs> I mean locked I'm currently talking to you from what effectively is my garden shed <laughs> I, I've been stuck in this shed since March <laughs> trying my best to, oh, to keep on top of work you know to try and Uh, continue to help students to to try to as best I can keep on top of research and and other things Mm. to do with my job as an academic at the university yeah and it's been incredibly isolating yeah I miss conversations with colleagues in the corridor I miss being able to just chat to students when they need help and knock on my door and yes you can do some of that through teams but something is lost I think in terms of community yeah um, from the way that we've had to work over the past few months so I will certainly look forward to getting back to my office as soon as it's safe Mm. for that to happen and we've had the kids at home so my kids are all quite young and they got sent home from school in March and they've been here ever since. And at times that's been really, really difficult yeah. because my wife and I have been trying to work whilst homeschooling them and look after them and keep them happy. Mm. And and that's been really, really hard. So I've been looking back actually with some, what might actually, I suppose, be rose-tinted specs at the last few months, thinking, oh, I'm going to miss them because <laughs> they're gone now. They're back at school and all being well, that's where they'll stay Mm,
0: I can imagine I think that's a lot of people listening will probably sympathize and empathize with that immensely and I I think it's it's interesting as well to point out that it can be hard and difficult and there can be sort of you know problems and challenges but you're still quite entitled to miss them and and Mm. because it's another it's another thing to adapt to you know we've had to adapt to one way and then things change again and you know it's not something we've ever experienced before so um it's 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 hugely confusing i think (laughs) it's extremely
1: confusing it's definitely yeah
0: and are you going to be doing some online teaching in the new term at all is that the plan
1: yeah it is i've already recorded my first lecture ready for that ready for our new first years i've recorded a lecture called humanity and the cosmos so we start big
0: i was gonna say that sounds that sounds very very broad
1: (laughs) and this is big history in every sense of the word so that and that includes everything including dinosaurs we go from the big bang right up through dinosaurs to putting human history into this this big broad context so i've just recorded that and that is now ready for a new intake of first years to listen to and watch at their leisure when they come so yeah gearing up for all of that and Mm. Getting ready to teach online and 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 perhaps all being well face to face as well.
0: It sounds brilliant, and I, personally, I would love to see that lecture. I, I'm fascinated with sort of the idea of sort of the bigger sense of history and our place in the universe, and and because the universe's history is so massive, and and on a scale of that, you know, we are so small, and and I know that you have certain ways of telling that those stories and. And explaining those sorts of things, unusual ways of explaining those sorts of things to your students um, in terms of sort of using storytelling. And perhaps it brings in storytelling with your children as well. Am I, am yeah, I so correct in that?
1: Having kids and having kids w- with, with toys is really helpful for, for these lectures. So one of the things that I do is I've got these, these dinosaurs. Oh, I've got amazing. A, a T-Rex <laughs> here. And um, I've also got a, a, a brachiosaurus. Excellent. So one of the things that I ask in that talk is who would win in a fight between the brachiosaurus and the and the T. Rex. And I've I've done that now for the online version, which has included holding them up to the camera, okay, so that uh, so that the students can see them. And um, the answer is that it's a trick question. Okay. Those two creatures would never have met. Because they are they are separated by about eighty five million years of evolution, so the T Rex (laughs) is actually closer to you and me than it is to the Brachiosaur in evolutionary terms. So I mean it's a bit of a gimmick, but it's a way of doing exactly what you were just talking about, which is putting us into context. Yeah. We are, as human beings on the face of this earth, incredible latecomers. And what we think of as history, which is really the last 2,000 years, maybe at a push a bit more, sort of three, 3,000 years, if you're going right back into ancient history. Mm. But most of what we study is within the last 2,000 years. And that's a blink of an eye mm. in, in cosmic terms. And I think that's worth knowing, at the start of a history degree, um, to put all of the, the very detailed knowledge that you're going to acquire as a historian over three years mm. into that bigger, broader context.
0: Mm. Do you not think that that's a bit almost intimidating, thinking about all this history that you could, you know, all the things you may never know or never be able to study and choosing what you may want to specialise. If you're If you're an undergraduate, for example, thinking of becoming a historian and, and really you know, delving into an area in particular, mm. you've got so much to choose from and not enough time. Do you think that it just blows people's minds a little bit?
1: Hopefully. <laughs> I I think that's one of the things that's exciting about history is that mm. there's so, despite the fact that it is such a, a blip in cosmic time, human history is so complex mm. and there's so much to choose from. It is daunting, and it perhaps is a bit mind blowing. But that is also the excitement of the of the discipline. Yeah, that there are so many different ways that you can go with it.
0: Mm. You could literally study anything, and I, and I wonder if if you weren't studying and, and researching what you specialize in right now, what other sort of historical time or um, subject do you think you'd be interested in in branching off to if you had to go in a completely new direction uh, do
1: you know I I have this fantasy all the time and <laughs> it changes every week <laughs> what's
0: it this week well I i I've,
1: <laughs> earlier on in the summer we sat down and watched the Wolf Hall adaptations from Hilary Mantel's books and
0: okay I th- yeah
1: that would be I think another thing to have done at one point if I'd gone in a different direction, Tudor history. Thomas Cromwell is a yeah, a, a fascinating character. But then, at other times, I think I would like to have done more contemporary history. Mm. I was thinking the other day, partly because I've had to start preparing to help a colleague a module on Nelson Mandela Okay. I was thinking about my memory of the struggle against apartheid and the new South Africa in the 1990s mm. and of the 1990s as a really really exciting and interesting historical moment mm. and it was a moment that felt very different I think to the times that we're going through now I, I remember Mandela walking free I remember the Berlin Wall coming down mm. and I remember a great deal of sort of hope and optimism about the world is changing, it's changing for the better, often in ways that looked like they were progressive. Yeah, And, and you imagine that that would always be the case, that we'd always be walking towards a brighter future. Mm. Uh, and I think the early 1990s, d- despite the, the fact of the first Gulf War and all of the other sorts of things that are going on at that time, including things that we've talked about in this podcast, there was a sense, I think, In that decade of of optimism, certainly by the middle and end of the 1990s, that we've lost somehow. Mm. And looking now in the period of COVID, in the the period of so-called fake news and Donald Trump and the political mess that we're in right now. A little bit of me pines for the the mid to late 1990s. But also makes me think, well, isn't that a really interesting historical moment to think about? and look back on Mm. so that's a rather long-winded answer I think it's a great answer I could could pick a whole load of other things that I I, I wish I'd studied or or could spend time studying
0: as we've established there's a whole lot of history to cover and there's endless possibilities and it does make me uh, chuckle that the 90s are sort of historical moments now having this is going to possibly make some listeners roll their eyes but having been born in the 90s um i can't believe that it. it's sort of so long ago that it's so different and we can look back and really start comparing and um obviously you know historians can look back a couple of years and it's history but mm. yeah i can't believe that we're talking about the 90s as being a, a very significant part of history but i think you're right so uh, yeah interesting <laughs> It's been excellent talking to you and finding out a bit more about your research and and also, you know, history in general and how important it is for us now and and how relevant it is. So thank you so much for joining me today. I have one final important question. Is there anyone in history, quite nice and broad there, that you would want to share a cup of tea with and have a conversation with?
1: Again, that would change (laughs) every week. So I'll just say, having said what I've just said, I would like to sit down with both Thomas Cromwell and Nelson Mandela and, and have a cup of tea with a pair of them in a conversation and see where that went.
0: <laughs> I'd like to be a fly on the wall of that conversation, if you don't mind, because I can imagine it's qu- quite interesting. Um, excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining me, Krista, and good luck with the upcoming new term and sort of your new way of teaching and the rest of your research.
1: That's great. Thanks, Joe.
0: Thanks again to Krista for speaking to me today. For more information about Krista and his research, head to the University of Southampton website and search for Krista Petley. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss out on a future episode. I'm Joe Fisher. Thank you for listening. This has been a podcast from the University of Southampton.